have to worry, you can have your fun. Good afternoon. You've got Living Writers on WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, I'm so happy to have Tong Hui Hu here in the studio with me. Welcome. Hey, thanks. Thanks a lot. <laughs> well, I, it's just, it's good to see you across the table here. It's, That's right. It's, it's been a while. <laughs> I feel like we're having a family-style dinner, but with a lot of equipment, you know, um, in our faces at the right. same time. <laughs> right. The strange microphone arm. And, and... Yeah, but it's very civilized. We have a water glass and, you know. I feel like, oh, it's it's very comforting actually. So. Well, Wei Wei, welcome back because you're a friend of the show. Um, you were here before um, for um, for mine with, uh, right. and and then we talked about your your first book, the Book of Motion, that time too. And now we've got your latest out with Copper Canyon Press, Greenhouses, Lighthouses. That's right. Um, actually, I have a few friends who aren't poets, and they keep forgetting the name of it. So one friend calls it uh, Courthouses, Whorehouses. And uh, <laughs> um, anyway, I, so I want to repeat the title in case anybody forgets. It's Greenhouses, Lighthouses. Um, obviously, the took... other one is so catchy, though. So now I'm <laughs> going to have to be careful. <laughs> of the breaks when we talk about them. Oh, no. Well, that might be the next book coming out. Right, right. It'll be a whole series of books. <laughs> Always with a comma, right? right, it's right. Like, um, and wait, wait, you, you also kindly, we've got Greenhouses, Lighthouses on the table before us, and we also, you've bought a, with you a, a sheaf of poems, too. Yeah, So we've right. got new work. It, it's a really, really thick sheaf. It's about 100 pages of new uh, work that I've done. Um, and uh, yeah, that's, uh, I'm really excited about how much writing I've done since the last time. You know, I was on the show. I can hardly, I can hardly see you for all the paper. Right, right, exactly. <laughs> um, but before we go any further, I'll just we'll start with the the short bio in the back of of the book here. Tung Hui, who is the author of two previous books of poetry, Mine, two thousand seven, and The Book of Motion, two thousand three. He teaches poetry and media studies at the University of Michigan, where he is an assistant professor of English. Um, that's right. so again, yes, it's yeah. all right. It's all correct, <laughs> and and also why we we're we're laughing and giggling a, a little bit. Because, well, because yeah. I know I, I know you a little bit <laughs> for the University of Michigan. Right. Um, go blue, right? Yes. Go blue. Yeah. I, yeah, I've been here for forever. Um, I first got here in uh, 90, 98 or something. I was like nineteen years old or something, um, entering the MFA program for the first time. It was a little tricky because I didn't have a fake ID, um, but I wanted all my my uh, classmates to to think that I was old enough to, to buy alcohol. So there are all these weird arrangements I got into to obtain liquor, um, which wasn't really what you're supposed to be thinking of as a new graduate student in creative writing. So... Well, you were so young. Yes, I was. I was uh, very, uh, very lost. Um, I only lasted about a year. I, I quickly dropped out of the program, um, and uh, you know, headed out to San Francisco. But I made it back. You know, at the time, I was dating someone who sort of looked at me and said, "What are you doing with your life?" And, and I thought, well, one way I can prove that I'm doing something with my life is to get an MFA. So um, that's why I actually came back to Ann Arbor and finished my degree. Um, and and then I left again, and so it's this sort of process of you know leaving and coming back. You know, every five years or so, I seem to, you know, go away and, and return somehow much later um, in a different phase. Um, so, yeah. so Ann Arbor hasn't seen the last of you. <laughs> Hopefully not. <yeah. laughs> 
and, and and the and your love of the West Coast. So you're you're born and raised in San Francisco, Weiwei. Yeah, born in Santa Barbara, and um, yeah, spent ten years in San Francisco. Um, although you know, right now it's so unaffordable. It's so full of dot comers that you know all have their. Rebecca Solnit just wrote an essay about the Google buses that sort of pull up, and they're like huge, gigantic whales that discharge their cargo of. She makes fun of the nerdy pocket protector wearing um, people who get lost and can't really survive outside of this ecosystem. So, I think that's what's happened to the city. I'll I'll be there next year, so I can report back on what it actually looks like. But, yes, yeah. yes, because you've got you've got your a break coming up from, yeah, so you right. w- won't be teaching this right, this right. next year. Yeah. Um, but but the Google buses, they're not really Google buses, are they? No, they're <laughs> nice. not Google buses. They're are they um, literally for everyone who works. Everyone who works on Google, or, or oh, there's okay. the Facebook bus and the Apple bus, and there's a whole map of this alternate public transit system that, you know, if you only get the right badge, you suddenly have access into this weird world where, you know, you get taken from place to place with, you know. <laughs> it's not just the BART anymore. No, no, it's BART like, is for like, I guess, the poor people now or something. <laughs> <Right>. So, <laughs> so and, and I both condemn this and also I'm scheming to find a way to, you know, get access get somehow. Get some passes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It, it would actually make quite a neat poster, right? With all the different, the designs of all the, the different oh, yeah. routes, maybe oh, yeah. in the different colors. Not quite like Paris, but, right. you know, right. San Francisco will, will yeah. do its best. But it's shadow world. Anyway, but, but poetry, I guess, is what yeah, happens sometime next poetry year. And, and, and well, you, um, well, let's talk a little bit about the book. Let's mm-hmm. let's let's start with that Copper Canyon Press. Um, this is the the the, the press that's um, published greenhouses, lighthouses. Um, what was your experience like working with these folks, Weiwei? You know, um, I still don't really believe they exist. Mm-hmm. Um, I. I think that they're somewhere in some state park on the tip of Washington State. Um, I know people who've worked there. I've certainly met people from there, but I still don't really believe that this tiny clapboard white, you know, darling house exists that puts out all these books of poetry. It's a magical place. <laughs> <Is it>? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I sort of want to like show up and knock on the door and say like, do, do you know, do we know each other? Um, but yeah, um, I, I, it was a lot of fun working with them. Um, they've uh, it, it also the pace, I mean, they publish so many books that um, understandably they have a huge backlog. And so, you know, one of the things that happened is that um, this uh, book uh, actually was sort of in the middle of the production process and, you know, it would take a few more years for it to come out. And um, I actually thought about the title. I, I thought the book was finished, but I ended up going, oh, maybe now I'm actually interested in lighthouses. I've never put a lighthouse poem inside a book, you know, titled Lighthouses. That's really cheesy. Um, but I, then I wrote a really long um, essay about a lighthouse. And then, you know, a few more um, months passed and I thought, oh, well, what the hell I'll stick it in there so I guess that's sort of what happens um, to a, a book when it's you know being produced is that you sort of uh, it, it morphs radically from what you you think you're done and then you're done six more times and um, so I, that was the process and so it was already accepted way way yeah and then you've actually added all the parts about smalls yeah, the smalls exactly. lighthouse right. and is it Whitman uh, Whit, Whit's Whiteside Whiteside yeah Henry Whiteside it's this crazy story about a lighthouse that um, was built in the 18th century basically out of logs and um, and it was built by a violin maker that was what 26 or something he didn't have any lighthouse experience um, and it was built what like 20 miles off the shore so in this really precarious place it would get washed over by the seas every um, so often 
but by this weird quirk in the law, it, it became the wealthiest lighthouse in the world um, because anything that sort of sailed within a, a certain distance from it had to pay taxes essentially um, to the lighthouse owner, even if you never saw the light. It was this new idea of imagining the ocean as you know something that you could actually start taxing and you know extracting wealth out of rather than you know a lighthouse because it's pretty and you know lights the way for a navigator. So, um, and, yeah, that and that's the, off the coast of Wales. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the sort of uh, fun adventures I had is that after I finished writing that poem, of course, I wanted to see it, and I had an extra two days or something, um, and abruptly decided. You were in Scotland, right? I was, um, or, or yeah, I was just accompanying a, a friend hiking in um, in France, and I thought, well, Wales is close enough. Um, <laughs> And Once you're across the pond, yeah, 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 right, within, yeah. everything sort of seems possible in this throw. weird way. Right? <laughs> That's what the Vikings thought. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking about how that translates to America because we were just um, in the Arctic Circle about a month ago, and you know, we we would tell the Swedes this uh, in Stockholm, and they'd look at us and sort of be perplexed and go, why are you going there? It's, that's kind of like the Ohio of our country, you know? And, and I was sort of thinking, you know, wow, I thought this would be this dramatic, you know, um, remote destination. And they're like, yeah, it's, it's Ohio. Um, not that, you know, there's anything that wrong with Ohio, but... Um, Surely not. I, I mean, Surely not. Yeah. It's a good, solid state. To yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> not as good as Michigan, but, you know. Um, so, yeah. Like go blue moment. Yeah. <laughs> One way, way. T-zero. <laughs> Thank you. I've been trying to... <laughs> you know, that um, yeah, so uh, Wales, I mean, it's it's also an incredibly depressed coal mining um, economy that I went to, but, you know, at the very tip of it um, uh, had had all these amazing moments of beauty in it. And I did sort of get really close to finding the lighthouse. It was sort of my job for the, you know, few days I was there is to ask everybody um, I met about that. Um, but you had already written the essay poem. I'd already written most of it. And... Um, I mean, one of the real feelings of accomplishment was the sense that I had done all this research and uh, reading about it, and I'm trying to get into the minds of these people um, 200 or 100 years ago. Um, and I was uh, walking around on my own and found a, a sort of field where I just knew that, um, you know, intuitively I'd written about this field. And so I said, this must be the place where they assembled the lighthouse on land before they brought it out. Um it matched sort of my, my imagination of it, but uh, somehow, uh, finally, I walked around and there was actually a plaque that had the picture of a lighthouse on it. Um, so, it's it's a sort of nice thing when you know so what you imagine comes into being, right? Well, mind blowing a bit. Yeah, yeah. Wait, wait. And so, why did you pick Small's Lighthouse? Like, was it something that you you found like it was the most profitable lighthouse of you know the seventeen fifty seven, or like what what drew you to it to begin with? Had That's you a not good question? You know, I, I was looking for. Uh, basically it was the first place where someone had sent a message in a bottle oh, yes. and okay. um, it got successfully returned you know someone actually read the message and said oh okay we need to save you guys so um, I was thinking about uh, Donovan Hahn's book uh, I was also uh, about this sort of um, global flows of way, uh, you know um, stuff dumped overboard but um, and I've been sort of working on this longer term project about imagining um, and making visible these these sort of invisible um, senses of empire um, and empire defined as this very
very large sense of, you know, how do we fit into a a bigger picture? How do we fit into a collectivity? Um, You know, when global shipping movements go past us, um, we don't ever sense that we just get to see, you know, the the toys that we buy in the stores or the electronics. Um, And it's only every now and then when, say, there's a labor strike um, that we start to notice this whole system in place that's kind of invisible. Um, So this lighthouse was sort of the first um, object that I could find that's captured all these invisible movements between these different points. Um, And I'm hoping to sort of start with that and and, uh, investigate other kinds of empires, um, smells and um, tastes and so on. And and it's interesting then that this became part of, because it it begins the book, and then it it also ends the book, and there's a and there's the palette and the invisible green. So it's interesting how now it's it's sort of informed this particular book yeah, as yeah, well. Yeah, it changes the way that I see the book now. And um, I mean, I still don't quite know what to do with the book. Uh, you know, when I picked it up for the first time, and it came out a few months ago, uh, maybe two or, two or three months ago, um, I didn't really know what to do with it because, you know, you see all these things in your own mind on the page in a certain way. And, you know, it really felt like I needed an operator or some manual to sort of tell me, like, how do I get from this point to this point? How do I get, you know, how do I find this idea? And how do I, I wanted an index of like, like all the images so I could look for certain things. Um, well, is that when you actually added the images then, Weiwei? Because the the book then not only changed to have this text in it, these blocks of text, yeah. but also the, the, the maps and the, the pictures that are included. Yeah, I'm, I'm super into the maps. I'm really grateful for Copper Canyon for even suggesting it and letting me do it. And, um, you know, spent a lot of time. Uh, I mean, some of these maps are, are awesome um, because they're, so there's a they try to capture all this um, known world and then all of a sudden there's this um, you know little darling drawing of a lighthouse and then you have dragons uh, you know I don't think I included any of them in the um, in the book but uh, the, the sort of conceptions of the world um, a little bit misshapen but pretty close to what we imagine um, so the world isn't quite sort of gelled into the countries that we sort of associate um, but yeah, I, I was really happy to put images in. Um, a lot of the book is influenced by images and films in some ways and photography. Um, so, you know, it would be pretty cheesy if I just put images um, just to illustrate things. But I was I was glad that they let me um, actually do some of that inside the book. Well, let's take a short break, Weiwei. And then when we come back, maybe we can talk about some of that, the films, the, the woodcut, like yeah. the different things that have influenced the book, as well as the lighthouses. Um, today on the program, Tung Hui Hu, Greenhouses and Lighthouses. You've got living writers. We'll be right back.
Welcome back. If you're just tuning in, glad you did. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Tong Hui Hu is here. His book from Copper Canyon Press, Greenhouses, Lighthouses. And many thanks to Steph, who's engineering here. Stephanie's behind the glass. And Wei Wei just waved to Stephanie. <laughs> so there's a visual for everyone. Um, so we've been talking in the first quarter of the program um, about Wei Wei's new book, his latest book, um, and we were talking about the lighthouse that has sort of become to like has really informed this whole uh, this artifact of the book mm-hmm. here. Um, and Wei Wei, you chose the music for today's program. Uh, could you tell us like a little bit about the music we just heard there? Yeah, it's a British composer, a sound artist, I guess, uh, uh, named Plinth, um, and he, you know, wrote uh, and uh, I guess uh, assembled a, a whole group of music called uh, uh, Music for Small's Lighthouse. And it was one of those sort of strange coincidences where, um, at the same time that I was writing it, a play had just been performed about the lighthouse as well. So really, you know, it, 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 all these all, it, all it these things having its another yeah, life. Exactly, you know, 150 years or so after um, it was built, or uh, and so I, I loved the I listened to it when I was writing. Um, I uh, he has some sound recordings of the waves. Um, I think he actually went out and did some recordings. Um, and so a lot of getting into the sound of the the um, environment was um, part of the writing process. And so um, I've never met him, but I you know hope to someday and um, hope he's happy that his uh, music is playing here in the U.S. Yeah. Well, and thanks for p- picking the songs for today's show. Huh? That's great. Yeah. <laughs> I know you said there was lots of hand wringing <laughs> as you were choosing these <laughs> selections. Well, <but. laughs> you know, the reason why is because it actually makes me feel like a mixtape where other people gave me uh, a lot of music to listen to when I was off writing on these residencies. Um, and so, y- you know, you listen to the same thing over and over and over, basically what, what your friends give you on your USB sticks or something. Um, and so it kind of gets drilled into your head as you're writing. And um, so it, it it's, was hand wringing also in the sense that um, I hadn't listened to some of these songs. In, in a while, um, and it sort of takes me back into the small little studio, you know, facing the winter and the the you know squirrels or something um, as I was writing. So that's one that's of the reasons why I wanted to you know bring the music back. That's wonderful. That's <laughs> wonderful. Wait, wait. Um, and and so you're you're going to will you read for us um, uh, so that we can get a sense because um, we've of of this piece um, in from invisible green. Um, yeah. I have a piece at the end. I hope it's not too long, but um, I'll try. It's uh, the, the piece is called Invisible Green, and it's written as an essay. Um, so it goes, this part goes, for nearly a century, the most reliable fog signal was a bird colony. The Scaries Lighthouse kept a colony of terns as late as 1863. Close to it, the South Stack Light had gulls so tame they were considered pets by their keepers. Together, the two different bird cries allowed a ship to navigate between two rocks that in fog looked like perfect twins. The sounds from the Smalls Lighthouse uh, consisted of seals barking and gannets from nearby Scotcomb Island. You cannot navigate too well by these sounds, but at least your fog signals do not risk being eaten by escaped rats. A cat has been tried, but she preferred birds to rats. So had explosives been tried and whistles, gongs, bells, horns, sirens, reeds, and diaphones, and yet the signals continue to disappear. An explosion on land might be heard 25 miles away on the smalls, but not on a ship three miles away. It was as if the sounds had been swallowed by the ocean, only to be reappearing in another place entirely. 
Physicist John Tyndall studied the fog signal problem on the Lighthouse Authority's steamship Irene, concluding that sound waves were being deflected by acoustic clouds. His notes on July 3rd, 1873 read, The echoes reached us as if by magic from the invisible acoustic clouds with which optically transparent atmospheres are filled. For Tyndall, we are surrounded by a sort of noble ghost incessantly floating or flying through the air, regally indifferent to our senses and palpable only in its reflection. The acoustic clouds gave a plausible, if ultimately inaccurate, explanation for sounds lost at sea. At heart, though, they are less scientific theory than an expression of faith that a listener could be found for every speaker, even if the ears of a ghost, that the invisible lines that connected Liverpool and Philadelphia also connected signs and events across two moments in history, that somewhere in the fog was an audience for the concert in which the lighthouse was metronome, chamber, and orchestra. Now, as a signaling station, the Smalls watched for news, watches for news in the Irish Channel, shipwrecks and lost cargo. But its keepers also listen for fainter signals, such as the buzz of two bumblebees, Bombus SP, recorded as traveling west on an unusually warm July 7th, 1955, where the quail that manages to escape from a hunt on the mainland and spends the month of May 1960 jumping into rock pools. After his shift is over, the keeper takes the quail home, thinking he will raise the lost bird with his chickens. Somewhere in the lighthouse, someone counts this bird and remembers its call. A quail is lost, and a hundred miles away, as if by magic, it reappears as a chicken. Thanks, Weiwei. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> and so this, and you, that was that was. It's there's so much of a story that you're telling us here, and the, and you call it an an essay, right. but but it's an essay poem. How yeah. how do you grapple with that? And yeah, it's a great question. We I, I had the privilege of teaching a lyric essay class uh, last semester, which is fantastic. We made our own books and gave out anthologies. Um, but I I guess there's a genre of of lyric essay uh, which um, sort of takes uh, a lot of the associativeness of lyric poetry that you can jump from image to image, but also um, some of the investigative aspects of an essay. The sort of um, you know essay is a kind of uh, it's a word for to try out something to experiment, and so there's something in inherently experimental about these um, forms that I was tackling with. Um, also, I think some of the most innovative work in the last you know few years has been written by um, poets writing essays like Bono Coppel's Humanimal, um, Maggie Nelson's Bluets, I think a lot of uh, people have read recently. Um, and it felt just liberating to be able to just talk about things like I think in poetry you know so many of us sometimes myself included play the game called hide the meaning where you like know what it's supposed to be about and you sort of bury it in there and twist it so that you um, you know the image of a of, of really sad um, looking bird stands in for um, Portland or your father or something um, and uh, you know what's nice about us is you can just say what you mean and in fact um, that's the first thing you say you know you say this is about sadness or melancholy and then you can sort of dispense with all that nonsense that you know works up to it so it's actually a really you know liberating way of writing poetry um and uh yeah it's what i've been doing recently and uh, uh reading as well so 
And when you were researching this, wait, wait, were you just finding all of these sort of these connections? Like, oh, it's this this bottle that gets found and yeah. the message is sent back to the. Were you just continually thinking the Smalls Lighthouse? Wow, yeah. wow, having these moments and everything. Yeah, you don't connected. think about this really obscure thing that you know no one really um, sees anymore as being this kind of nexus or connection point between all these different ideas, and it's also sort of lens to get at things that maybe you can't um, get at normally. So. Uh, exactly. I mean, as a poet, you're always trying to find something concrete for, you know, these like lofty ideas. I mean, you spend half the time in, with your head in the clouds, but then you have to actually talk about it to someone else. And, you know, to sort of go up to someone and say, you know what, I'm writing about these vague ideas of um, ineffability um, versus, you know, yeah, I, I spent the summer looking for this abandoned lighthouse. You know, they, they kind of get that. So, uh, yeah. And it gives, like you said, these lenses, too. It gives you this opportunity when you were talking about the the two to um, Thomases, like mm-hmm. when Thomas Howell and Tom, they, um, where one of them dies yeah. on this island. Like, so you're, the lighthouse is supposed to keep people safe, and then, right. but they're very isolated, the, the keepers who are there. Um, and then one man dies. Yeah, the <laughs> then, story is that the, the and, man dies, but they're stuck there. And this is the there. end of the book, yeah, right? This yeah. is in the, the invisible green towards the end. Right, yeah, right. Yeah, you, don't, you don't start it with that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's the, that's the you know, subject that everybody else goes for immediately, right? Is that these two lighthouse keepers supposedly argue all the time and get really drunk together. And, you know, the guy dies and the other guy, you know, worried that everyone else suspects um, that he caused the death. Um you know, is not sure what to do. So he just sort of ties the body to the lighthouse. You know, he, he doesn't want to live with it. So he ties it to the outside of it. Didn't he make like a box out of part of the living room or something? Yeah, like, yeah he took his like living room. I mean, this is exactly what, you know, you and I would do, you know, if, you know, we um, were carpenters. Right, yeah. exactly. And had um, a body on our hands. Right. I mean, you know, very, very sensible. I feel like you, you make a sort of coffin, but, you know, of course the coffin breaks and, the, you know, and, uh, and the, I, I think the, the, glorious tale the way that it's told is that the the box breaks open the, the coffin breaks open and the guy's hand is like waving you know in to front passing of the light. ships yeah to passing ships as well you know and i wasn't of course interested in any of that because i have a really you know fine-tuned sensibility for boredom so i actually don't you know find that fascinating at all um i was much more interested in these sort of like long hours of spent you know journaling i shall eat fish now i shall eat this now <laughs> And then what happens to the person? Because that was one of those other moments where it was the first. Because after right, that, right. they always had three right, on, right. on a on a, as lighthouse. Keepers. Exactly, it the guy went that. crazy, and the British lighthouse authority decided, okay, there's a reason why you know two people stuck alone. Um, yeah, we need to change the rule to always have three lighthouse keepers. Um, and, so. and for astronauts, etc. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. NASA. Well, that's what they say <laughs> when they you know send um, astronauts out to Mars. They're training for it is to actually spend all this time alone with each other and see like how long it takes for them to crack um and there are all these sort of routines that you have to go through in order to you know prevent yourself from getting too bored and you know lasting psychologically so um i think they're holed up in some um some specialized facility it's similar to the um to the uh, Arctic uh, research station or Antarctic research stations, which you know also have to last through a winter where there's nothing to do, um, and people apparently go crazy and you know just walk out of the station because Into they're so the, yeah the without blizzard. wearing clothes or something. Um, so yeah, it's a real it's a real issue, and you know um, as a professor, I sort of specialize in boring my students, but I'm also interested in sort of figuring out how boredom works as a you know larger sense. So that might be the next. Book. Yeah, it's actually just going to be a lot of blank pages, you know, that you have to flip through or something. <laughs> That's right. 
Um, well, well, before we t- go to our, our short break, um, Weiwei, you'll be reading at Literati um, August 1st. That's right. Yeah, at 7 p.m. 7 p.m. at Literati on Washington at 4th. Um, so that's something, everyone, to put on your calendars, August 1st. Um, now we'll take a short break. Today on the program, Tong Hui Hu, his book, Greenhouses, Lighthouses. I'm T. Hetzel. We'll be right back. City, big town, you know that your home is long away gone, and you are alone. Little city, big town, you know that you're waiting for your life to go. Oh, we'll walk through the city tonight. I'm tired of watching, and I am sure that each single street to me Oh The stones under street lamps shone bright as I tore through town on my bike to catch every breath that waited cold and clean Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today on the program, Tung Hui Hu is here. Greenhouses and Lighthouses, out this year from Copper Canyon Press. Um, and Wei Wei, you just read for us um, part of Invisible Green, um, which is such a curious, also, I love that idea of it's it's a green that looks like black in the water. Mm-hmm. Is that, mm-hmm. and, yeah, uh, my friend John, um, I highly doubt he'll be listening, but... Um, well, hello, John, if you are. <laughs> he's uh, down in Huntington Beach, and um, he was one of those lucky guys who got a job out of college working for one of those companies that paid for his surfing lessons. So he took up surfing and would tell me all these stories about... What are being, one of those companies? <laughs> <laughs> Boeing, apparently. <laughs> you know, um, Yeah, I, I think I, I, there's something you know magical about uh, some of my friends' lives, and that, that's where most of... Um, my poems come from um you know i feel uh, very much like you know my life is full of shuffling papers and moving you know uh, printing out things and xeroxing them but um yeah so he he got trapped underwater uh and you know got a little bit freaked out by it um and uh, th- that's when i started thinking about this idea of uh, i mean it's an actual color if you look at the dictionary invisible green is a, is a real color um but, you know, what we sort of think of as invisible changes from, you know, year to year from um, and and these uh, weird ways in which we rely on visible objects. Um, when I was uh, at this one place, uh, Edna St. Vincent Millay's um, old house, uh, you have to go and walk uh, to the certain spot in the field. You didn't quite know where it was, but that's where you got cell reception. And that's where everyone sort of made their pilgrimage out to this spot. And so it's weird that our, our you know, lives are shaped by these invisible top- topographies of, you know, radar guns and um so on anyway yeah i wonder what edna thinks about that yeah. she's like what am i chopped liver <laughs> 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 well earlier 
on the the show, wait, wait, we were talking about the images that you used in here, and um, and I love how there's like the one with the the Smalls and Gresham Island right off St. Bride's Bay, um, but when you flip back to um, the the end of the book with the notes mm-hmm. and about and many of them sort of figure into your palinodes, yeah, um, yeah. Because you use a lot, like there's the um, Waiting for Tear Gas, mm-hmm. is a, you know, it was a photographic sequence by Alan. Secula, yeah. Secula, yeah, talk he about actually, the um, took those photos in Seattle uh, at the WTO protests. Um, you know, a lot of the images uh, came from my PhDs in film studies, and I sat in all these classes in the same room. They always had the same room scheduled for uh, film screenings. Um, and because you would take two or three classes, you would be there from, you know, 10 a.m. to 5 p.m. with maybe a break to eat a power bar. Um, and it just, was this, just watching films, like pieces of films? Well, I mean, you, you'd talk about them, too. and you know, But oftentimes you'd have your three-hour screening, and then you'd have your three-hour seminar, and then you'd have another class. Um, you, you didn't get out very often. And they chose it because it had blackout curtains and, you know, it was the sort of, you know, the projector and so on. But, um, you know, without going crazy in that class, you had to do something. And um, most of my um, notes about these films or photographs or images, um, I think, ended up as poems. So, um, you know, it was a really meaningful few years for me. Um, It felt intellectual and philosophical in a way of sort of thinking about how images work and what images are and what they can do and how they move through, you know, so how a photograph circulates. Um, and uh, a lot of these uh, images uh, sort of held on to me in some ways and and seemed to call me back, you know, a few years later. So I think that's how they um, ended up structuring the book. Um, the, the sort of center of the book is actually a series um, called uh, of palinodes. And, and a palinode is... Um, a word that means to sing back something. Um, and it also comes out of this um, quote I, that basically somehow um, photographs are, are a way of, of doing this uh, work. You know, that photographs are, are almost historical in the sense that, you know, t- to quote um, one of these theorists, you know, when you look at the photograph, you're looking at the eyes that, you know, looked at Napoleon or something. You're looking at the actual light that actually touched someone else in time. Um, so, uh, yeah, I had the idea of using the palinode as a structuring advice. Um the you know story, and I know I'm, I'm moving really quickly through a bunch of things, but um, the original Palinode is is a guy who was struck blind for insulting Helen of Troy um, as to Secrets. And when he uh, comes to his senses, he realizes what he's done, and he also realizes that he needs to um, fix his error by composing a poem, um, sort of like a oops, I messed up kind of poem. And so he says, okay, actually, Helen, you didn't go to Troy. You never went to Troy. In fact, um, the only thing that went to Troy was this like phantom image of you that kind of looked exactly like you um, and was made out of clouds. And so it's just like this long story and tradition um, that the whole Trojan War was a fake. It was fought over an image of Helen rather than the real Helen. And it sounds fantastical, but of course we fight wars over images all the time. We fight, you know, the Iraq War over these like fake images of weapons of mass destruction and so on. So um, tracking, you know, our belief in these images, I think, was um, some of the the goal of the the center section of Palinodes. 
And I, I think it's funny because you said the, the definition is to sing back, which right. is so lovely. And instead, I think um, I was thinking retraction right. to, to right. write a poem saying that the other poem. Was, yeah, exactly. you know? <laughs> but I love like the phrasing to sing back, yeah. <laughs> to try to take it back, but in in a the pretty way. Yeah. I have that actually, too. I have a, one poem where I, I sort of try to take back some of the corrections. The, yeah, corrections. That, yeah, yeah, that's in there. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I liked the idea of sort of atoning for invisible uh, and sort of like fake errors of mine that I've made over the years. Um, so, yeah, I, I think that I liked that part, too. And, you know, I wish I had spent more time sort of um, making more fake corrections um, because, you know, the whole idea of, of, of that genre... Um, you know, Chaucer did it, uh, Simic did it. Um, I, I'm trying to think of some of the famous uh, palettes over the years. Um, but yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm sorry I called your mother, uh, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, I mean, there's there's a way in which when you, uh, you know, some apologies can actually be kind of aggressive too, right? Some apologies can actually be the opposite of actually apologizing. Um, <laughs> Making a point yeah, exactly. somehow. <laughs> yeah. I'm sorry that you uh, were kind of dumb, you know, the other day. And uh, right. So um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it's an idea I'd love to, to toy with even more. Um, although, you know, once you finish a book, you sort of feel like, oh, okay, I've, I've got to stop doing this now. I've got to, like, find a new thing to obsess about. Um, and, uh, yeah, I'm not sure what that'll be yet, but hopefully... Well, will, we, will you read us one of the palinodes? Yeah. Wait, wait. Because, uh, as, so we have a sense of those. Um, yeah, um, I'd be happy to. Because you also, so the ones where you say that the, like a particular film mm -hmm, um, was mm -hmm. important. Um, so you, are you saying that you actually like jotted down notes during that class, basically, <laughs> and then it became a poem later um, on? I, I think so. Or at least I'd like that to be the sort of story I tell about them. Okay. <laughs> um, okay. Maybe I'll read, um, this is called An Injury to One, and it's oh. both a union slogan, of course, but it's also a film by Travis Wilkerson about the Montana uh, you know, strip mining disasters and the um, strike breaking that went on in Montana. Um, so this is An Injury to One. In some tales, an injury shows up on the body of a statue in a temple. The serpentine wake from a dagger shunted as if pain could be transported to the body of another. Perhaps this is why you avoid me in the middle of the night. You are afraid pain itself might develop a way to communicate. Once after a bad fall, your hand slit open. You found a diagram online and did the sutures yourself, black thread, liquor, perforating the hand as if to be outside of and still yourself. And you show me this knowing how much your skin still puckered near the thread and blue at the edges makes me want to touch it, to reach inside and find. Do you remember the girl whose neck was attached by a ribbon? Who wants to reach inside the marvelous? Who is the first to unwrap the ribbon? And who is left behind watching? Thanks, Weiwei. Thanks. Um, yeah, there's... Uh, I guess I had a little bit of a gruesome imagination while you know reading all those uh, fairy tales about you know how um, there are all these uh, Japanese uh, tales you know where uh, magically Buddha intercedes and you know this happens and you sort of start wondering you know how exactly does that happen? Um, but so, thank goodness for Buddha. <laughs> I guess so, right? In those books <laughs> and ribbons, <laughs> <laughs> which keep all of our heads from falling off. I feel like yeah. That's sort of a key point here, <laughs> key takeaway from you know the poem. <laughs> <laughs> so many takeaways and but but going back to these ideas of the images and yeah. the visual working way way mm -hmm. in here so you also had um 
like the uh, the woodcut uh, mm-hmm. and and also a painting. So is it something where you're feeling? But they all became palinodes right, too. Right. So what is it about this visual? Or is it just maybe a way you work that you're incorporating the visual, and then because you were obsessed maybe with the yeah. palinodes that yeah. it became mixed? Or I think that's right. I mean, at the time I had a much more almost. Um, not quite scientific, but it felt like this gigantic jigsaw puzzle. I remember uh, being awarded um, a summer at Faulkner's girlfriend's house in Mississippi. Um, so next door was Faulkner's actual house, and we'd go there and get drunk and climb up the trees. But um, one of the advantages is that I never really lived in a huge house before, and there was this long wooden table that was the formal dining room table that could probably seat like 20 people or so. And of course, I was living by myself. So... Um, I would put all these pieces, the palinodes are probably like, what, 50 poems or so, or 45 poems, um, and, you know, rearrange them like a big jigsaw puzzle and see if this image connects to this image and, um, you know, number them like 1A, 7C, you know, and and so on. Um, I think it was a little bit too much at the time, but I had this, like, master plan on how all these poems related. Um, And, uh, yeah, so I I can't say now, looking at it, that it really had that much to do with, um, you know, specific images, but there was some sort of idea. I mean, there's a sort of, uh, not quite story, but there's a sort of ways in which uh, they sort of move between different ideas and themes in the poems. Was this the time way way then that you actually put them they started gathering into like palinode one splitting and then empire of the senses and um corrections and yeah they're groups of five and you know each one sort of takes up a specific idea one's about you know how to call back the dead and you know there's a little formula inside you paint you know um salt and honey on the window pane and wait for um apparently i mean it it takes from a few traditions but apparently you're supposed to do this and you leave the window open and then the dead can actually come back inside and then Um, get stuck yeah, <laughs> hopefully. Yeah, I, was, I actually don't know the sort of mechanics of how it works. But, you know, <laughs> or but is it a snack? Yeah, right. <laughs> it's sort of like those cookies you leave out for Santa, maybe. Maybe that's how. Um, those are also the, the ingredients for how they used to develop uh, photographs, um, you know, 120 oh. years ago, you know, before they had, you know, super professional chemicals or something. You could actually use egg whites um, and paint them on glass and sort of develop images. Um, of, you know, what they believed were the dead. Um, so, yeah, each one sort of takes up a theme, and hopefully, you know, um, one, as we mentioned, was corrections, or it sort of takes up the idea of, like, how do I sort of, you know, repent or sing back um, a wrong that I've done before? Um, uh, one, I just think of as, like, this is about L.A. and, you know, a road trip down there or something. And that's in splitting, <laughs> That's right. right? Yeah. That's that. So, okay, well then, so how is that a palinode because when you write that are you saying well we were in a relationship but now if I could I'd take it back or um because it's interesting because the form is because I almost tried to look for uh-huh. how they were yeah. interconnected like does one then take back what the one before it says or yeah. you know like I was is, so how does that one the road trip one yeah it's become sort of, part of this series I mean it, it feels really uh, silly to say this, but um, yeah, it was, uh, it was about a breakup, and um, and you know, at the end, you know, of course, they're split, and so the second palinode sort of takes up this idea of, well, what happens if you're split into two bodies? Um, 
and you know there's this sort of you know what does a sort of ghost copy of you look like um you know and and I like I, Helen yeah exactly I guess like I mean my ghost copy was not Helen my, I, I I sort of picture my ghost copy as this like rival in um in ele- was it elementary school or some middle school maybe um who you know my piano teacher sort of told us we were rivals and i said okay i guess that's right i guess she'll be my rival and i didn't, I didn't really know what that was um but you know i'd always see her at you know other piano competitions being a good asian kid right um and uh you know we sort of you know i guess we were kind of copies of each other in a way so so it kind of i mean that's the connection back to the first one um it ends with a poem about uh weather uh, i interviewed a national weather service forecaster and and so weather is sort of the thing that starts the um the one after that and and, and so on and so forth um so yeah i mean there are these uh, you know i I'd sort of pictured someone reading it um, slowly, you know, by themselves, uh, and um, you know, I don't know if it, I don't think this book is a page turner, um, but you know, hopefully these these themes start to um, sink in after, you know, the you know fourth or fifth palinode. Well, maybe if if you're taking um, things to include in the the um, the palinode for splitting, maybe you mm-hmm. would want to put Britta Pitcher yeah. in the first <laughs> list. <laughs> Is that right? So everybody, you can page twenty eight when you go to Weiwei's reading on August first yeah. at Literati. Um, you can see what you would add to the list right. <laughs> during the breakup. We're going to be right back on Living Writers today on the program. Tung Wei, who is here, his book Greenhouses, Lighthouses. We'll be back. Welcome back. You've got Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. Today, Tung Hui, Tung Hui Hu is here. Greenhouses and Lighthouses, out with Copper Canyon Press this year. I'm T. Hetzel. Um, we've been having um, a, a great talk today, and um, we've been talking about greenhouses and lighthouses. Um, and now we're going to turn our attention, <laughs> right, Weiwei? Sure. To, the, to the, the poems on the table. Um 
because it, as you mentioned earlier, it takes a while um, for a book to actually come out. And it and so Greenhouse and, and Lighthouses even went through some major um, changes when you were when it was technically at the publishers. Um, and then then you were saying there's kind of was there a bit of a slower process with the poems for a while or, or? Well, I'm incredibly slow as a writer. Um, I maybe write, uh, it was probably about a poem a year for, um, the last five years or so, um, with a few exceptions. So, uh, I feel really guilty about that and I'm not a good person. Um, but I, I what are you saying? Yeah. I, I mean, it feels weird to sort of call yourself a writer and actually not do any writing. Um, so well, are you, you researching? Know. Are you sort of gathering? Um, you know, one uh, of the funny things about my job is I'm also like half an academic. So I teach half in uh, film and media studies. Um, and so I've actually just finished a book about the cloud, the prehistory of the cloud. Um, and, you know, it's actually been in the news a lot recently with the NSA uh, PRISM program and um, all the sort of things that the, our friends at Google and Microsoft do to, you know, collect our information. So uh, you just, so this book is out already, Weiwei? It's not, it's... Because uh, you could have brought it along. Yeah, I could read, you <laughs> it's know... It's a book. <laughs> Living <right>. writers. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. <laughs> um, well, tell us about it a little more. Yeah. yeah. It's, so, it's when, when, when can people look for it? And yeah. Um, you know, uh, fingers crossed on the publisher that will publish it. Um, but uh, that's yeah. I mean, it's a story basically about how the internet, uh, which we sort of think of as completely placeless and nowhere, um, grew out of much older technologies. Um, so if I ask you where the network is, um, it turns out that it's actually crossing the same paths as railroad lines from, um, and, you know, telegraph lines and so on from the 19th century. Um, huh. And, you know, if you think about companies like Sprint, which maybe your cell phone um, is on and carries a lot of data across the, the internet, um, it turns out Sprint's actually an acronym. So Sprint uh, stands for Southern Pacific Railroad Internal Network. Um <laughs> And in the 1970s, they realized, gosh, you know, we have all these wires that we run across the country. Uh, we can probably use it for something else than just signaling railroads. Um, so, you know, these things that we, sh we think of as completely new as invention in the last two or three years, um, mm -hmm. you know, have a much older origin. And part of the argument of the book is to look at these older places and sort of tie um, some of the ideas that we have about um, the cloud and it's sort of like, where is it? Um, to older ideas about security and um, war, actually. So a lot, a lot of the uh, mechanisms and um, equipment and uh, thinking about um, the Internet is, has to do with, you know, a sort of defense of uh, either a weapon or um, some sort of mentality where we're going to seal it off from people trying to um, break in. Um, so, you know, even though that's removed now, uh, we still talk about, um, you know, Russian hackers and Chinese, um, you know, people trying to uh, break in and undermine our society from the inside. Um, so a lot of the same parallels to the rhetoric of, of how um, um, of, of 19th century ideas about war and security. Um, you but know. that how curious though, because as you're, I think you're alluding to, is it's like where is the, where are the borders for the cloud? Yeah. If there well, is a cloud, it and it's not just these lines that are over railroads yeah. or... Yeah, I mean that's the thing about it is that actually they're still governed by a lot of laws, right? And so um, we think about it as like you're totally anonymous or um, at least um, we can go across the border and get, you know, download some files illegally 
probably from, you know, uh, Sweden or something. Um, but uh, it turns out that, you know, first of all, a lot of the, the things that make it work um, are Cold War type things. So the biggest uh, place for storing um, data for data management for companies is called Iron Mountain. They used to store uh, records from nuclear strikes um, inside their little bunkers. And a lot of people have turned bunkers into uh, data centers for the cloud. Um, uh, and, oh, it's so interesting. Though. Yeah. And, and, and very eerie. Yeah, and yeah, exactly. Terrifying. So it's a sort of, you know, mode of caution. Um, it's not really uh, a cloud at all. Right, right. I mean, part of the idea of the cloud is to sort of get us to stop paying attention to the physical thing and to sort of think about it as completely, you know, uh, environmental and always around us. And if we start doing that, you know, then we um, stop thinking about, you know, the actual people caught in between the, the physical spaces um, of the cloud, uh, between whether that's because of law or um, we stop thinking about um, the ways that the cloud is actually used to enable torture. Um, and uh, so just as the cloud allows us to outsource a lot of our emails and, um, you know, electronic stuff to other companies, which kind of handle it for us, um, the same idea is behind things like outsourcing sourcing uh, detainees to third-party countries. So we, we look for, Facebook looks for the cheapest way to store um, data uh, in Asia and, and chooses Singapore, right? We look for the um, easiest way to torture somebody and we choose a third country like Afghanistan. Um, so a lot of the same logics behind it, um, are, uh, the logic of the cloud is actually part and parcel of this sort of larger logic um, about uh, security. So that's, anyway, I, I, I hate to go too far away from right. poetry, but that's, you know, the, the argument I lay out. And that's that's sort of why I'm interested in all these spaces as a way of saying, look, it's actually not placeless after all. Actually, if you start paying attention to where these places are and why we're doing them, um, we start to see this, you know, pattern which has been going on um, since the Cold War. Mm. And that seems to change, like even Palinode too, with a cloud system somehow. <laughs> yeah, there are sort of strange connections between the, the two sides of me. I'm, I'm not sure where they are exactly. Um, but yeah, you know, the I, I, I was thinking um, there's a, a guy, a cultural historian named Stephen Connor writes that um, it wasn't until really recently that we, I mean, we've thought about the air around us as kind of this inexhaustible place that's limitless, right? And all of a sudden with, you know, global warming and um, the ozone layer, we, we suddenly it's been transformed into this thing, which um, is actually not limitless at all. In fact, it's just this place we, we keep dumping waste into and, um, and actually there's a, you know, there's a hole in it and, and so on. So, um, you know, our imagination of something as limitless, as placeless as the cloud actually informs, you know, the sort of problems um, behind it. And and that's, you know, some of the connections both between, uh, you know, the, the kinds of thinking about clouds in, in this uh, book of poetry and, and the other kind of cloud in the other book. And let's, let's, are there any poems that are sort of informed with this idea also, Weiwei, that you have before you? Or shall we just, because I feel like we should also leap into the work, the new work that you've brought yeah. before we run out of time. You know, maybe I'll read uh, one or two poems really quickly. I'm not sure they have too much to do, but um, this one is called Woman Shut In for Six Years Found by a Distant Relative. Um, and I think they are informed by this idea of research. I've been spending so much time with footnotes and, you know, historical texts that I, I think it's hard to get out of that. So a lot of my poems come out of that these days. A woman shut in for six years found by a distant relative. At first, it could not have been too different from staying indoors during a long week of rain to browse through old newspapers, 
to open a box of mother's shoes, even to move one's day through smaller and smaller rooms, a tent pitched inside bathtub inside house. Neither bedridden nor sick, it was a choice of all the voices she could listen to, hers was always the sweetest. Like anchorites' lives measured by time they are away, by what they must have endured, But who has not thought of the pleasure in a voice turned like a lathe over the years, slowly losing the words given to you by others, necessity of inventing their replacements? And I want to just try one more poem, um, because we were talking about how difficult it is sometimes to read um, certain words on air. So um, I'm going to sort of gesture at the words I can't say. Could you say cloud? Uh, yeah, <laughs> it has cloud nothing, instead of, yeah, nothing right. to do with the two C words that will be taken out. I like but that. But cloud could be... Yeah, we'll use the, cloud as our sort okay. of sensor word. Yeah, and I mean, that was actually the, the original idea of it um, on the internet. You draw a cloud when you didn't want to bother with the, you know, the stuff behind <laughs> it. Um, on a, so, um, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. That's a, that's a really good idea. I, I hope we can, like, use people to use cloud to cuss at other people. I think that'd be really cool. Um, this is called Liver, Largest Glandular Organ Seat of Desire and Metabolic System. Liver. Once rated more erotic than the nipple, the cloud, the cloud, the nape of the neck, the curve of the ass, the painted toenail, the overrated heart, loyal as a fetish, each night liver returns to the same image, monochrome of a field in early March, soil spotting with branches and red flowers. Before spring, before blood and warm sweat, there was the liver in winter, its glands dulling with desire. Um, yeah, I, I, I feel like, uh, you know, this this is one one step towards taking back the liver. Um, you know, everyone talks yes. about the heart in poetry, but, you know, the liver kind of doesn't get much, unless it's like Bukowski or something. So. Amen. Wait, wait, yeah. I, I'm fighting the fight for the kidneys. Okay. The oh, kidneys the kidneys, too. Yeah. Yes. No, they're good ones. Underappreciated. Yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, thanks so much for being on the program. Thank you. And for reading the new poems and for your poems in Greenhouses, Lighthouses. Thank you. Um, today on the program, Tong Hui, who has been here speaking, um, talking about the cloud too. Very, some good stuff and many things to look forward to. Um, his latest book, Greenhouses, Lighthouses. Thanks for listening to everyone out there. Thanks to Stephanie for engineering. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time. It's 5 o'clock. You're listening to WCBN-FM Ann Arbor. Are you ready to party? You better be because it's time for the Drive Time Polka Party.
Well, maybe it is and maybe it isn't. I don't know what's wrong at all here. Let's listen to this. For those of you who feel you need a reason to listen to WCBN FM Ann Arbor, here's a sample of what you won't hear from this station. Bice down your coolers and get ready to bleed. Roadkill Productions is proud to present Deep Black Twisted Heavy Metal Death Crew with special guest the Sewer Priest. You better sit up front or you'll miss the splattering blood and flying rodent heads. Get a free Satan scum body bag if you show your Catholic high school ID. If they're too loud, you're too old. Be there and be with those that want to die. Enough said. Actually, that sounds pretty good to me, but be that as it may, it's time for the Drive Time Polka Party. (laughs) 